Ever wonder what psychologist moms talk about when we get together? Whether we're consulting one another about a challenging case or one of our own kids, or just leaning on each other when parenting feels hard, because trust me, even when we do this for a living, it's still hard. Joining me each week in these special Thursday shows are two of my closest friends, both moms, both psychologists. They're the people I call when I need a sounding board. These are our unfiltered answers to your parenting questions. We're letting you in on the conversations the three of us usually have behind closed doors. This is Securely Attached, Beyond the Sessions. Welcome to Beyond the Sessions here on the Securely Attached podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sarah Bren, and joining me again today is my partner from our group practice, Upshur Bren Psychology Group, Dr. Emily Upshur. Thanks so much for being here, Em. Hi. Always love to be here. Awesome. I'm so glad you're here. Um, We don't see enough of each other, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. Um, Okay. So, Em, let me read you the email that we're going to be addressing today. Um, So, this woman says, hi, Dr. Sarah. I love your podcast and I'm in the middle of your first year course. I had a question and thought it might be a good podcast question. How do you recommend handling being in the same room with a six to 12 month old and they are crying to be picked up by the parent, but another adult who is totally safe is holding them? We want to pick him up, but also want to build that resiliency. Should we move closer and talk to him without picking him up? Thank you. Okay. so. I think this is a great question because I feel like, I don't know, Emily, if you feel this way, but I feel like there's so much parenting advice about the importance of building distress tolerance to foster resilience, which I'm like all for, but that there's also a lot of information about like bodily autonomy and teaching consent from a really young age. And I feel like I could see, not knowing totally what this person had in mind when they were asking this question, like from which lens are they coming at, I could see this question almost be speaking to both sides of that of that scenario like mm-hmm. is it like uh if they don't want to be held by this person like how do we re- understand that in the context of like consent and bodily autonomy on the other hand looking at this situation from the lens of like distress tolerance building resilience intervening at like the lightest stage and being kind of attuned to that stretching of their distress tolerance without you know, ignoring it, there's a bit of a different lens, same scenario, different lens, different Mm -hmm. answer. So I could see where parents could get confused, like, oh, maybe these two things are at odds with each other, but maybe we could break that down a little bit. Like what, what are your thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, I think that outlines it really well. I think, I do think there's an overlap, however, right? Like I think one of the things that we always talk about is not doing like all or nothing thinking. So I think Mm -hmm. that really helps with this scenario, right? If you're in this, and I I also wanted to just touch upon, it was really poignant of this this, um, person to note the age of the child, six to 12 months is when stranger danger comes out, you know, like that quote unquote, like you have object object permanence. permanence. And so you know that it's someone else holding you, right? Like that's a very important, and in the beginning of that phase, it can be more distressing, right? Than obviously later on in the developmental. Really um, quick, I don't mean to interrupt you, but can you explain for people who might not be familiar with this concept what object permanence is and why that does trigger a little bit more like stranger anxiety in that age range, which is, you know, people, we do start to see that sort of separation anxiety kick mm-hmm. up a bit in that 
And there's actually sort of a a neurological mm-hmm. reason for that, like a cognitive development that's a, it's contributing to that. That's healthy. Right. Like it's a sign that it's working. We're getting where we're supposed right. to go. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think the way I think of it is it's not as if your baby didn't know it was you mom holding them before, right? But they it's not as poignant for them that you're no longer there, right? The the object permanence sort of um classic example is, you know, having a baby um, sit on the floor, be on the floor, sit on a lap and cover a ball with a blanket. Does the baby realize that the ball is under the blanket or does the baby not realize the ball is under the blanket, right? And the object mm-hmm. permanence is the baby pulls the blanket away and is like, there's my ball. <laughs> you know, why did you hide it underneath that blanket? Um, and I think that that, that that just makes sort of insight more, right? That allows the baby to have an, a, med- a better ability to say like, oh, I know that you're my mom and you're right there next to me. And hey, I'm supposed to be with you. I prefer to be with you. Or I'm hungry and I want to be with you. You know, whatever it is that allows the baby to sort of differentiate between people with a little bit more distinction. Mm-hmm. And that's, right. I don't know if you and, have stuff to add to that, but that's sort of how I think about it. Yes. And I think your example of the ball is the is sort of a great way to kind of concretize this. To me, what I think about object permanence is do you know I'm here when I'm not here, right? Can you hold me in your mind in some sort of way so that when I'm not in front of you, you can't see me, you know I exist. And so once a child kind of reaches that cognitive developmental stage where they can hold some sort of very, and and six to 12 months, it's very simplistic. It's very, very, very simple. But this idea that like, you know, before you reach that basic initial stage of object permanence, when you're, when I'm not around me, the mom, when I'm gone, my baby can't see me, they don't, I kind of just disappear from their conscious awareness, right? But once they hit that kind of basic threshold of object permanence, they know that I'm gone when I'm not with them. And so when they get kind of passed off to another caregiver and I say goodbye to them at, you know, at the nanny's place or at daycare, um, or I walk out the door to go to work when they're being held by their nanny or babysitter or whomever, they're a lot more aware of the fact that I'm not with them and they can show that distress. And so they know that the the caregiver holding them not only isn't mom, but they also know that mom is not here. And that activates their attachment system, which is a threat response, basically. It says like, I want my mom. I miss my mom. You're not my mom. And I'm or the same thing that you're not my mom, like that you're not my mom. Like in this example, the we're in the same room and you're not my mom. What what's happening, <laughs> right? And it it causes. Right. But I think to, I think something important to add to that is, and something we talk a lot about is like, you know, communicating like you're not my mom and I don't prefer this can look like crying in a baby, right? So that's a communication, but it isn't necessarily, I'm panicked. I'm in, you know, this isn't okay. I'm really scared. You know, like there's a range and sometimes it might be, but Mm -hmm. I think that there's a range in that. And I think for for this um, listener's question, I I think it's important to sort of hone in on that and like calm our own (laughs) anxiety systems, our own vasovagal systems, our own nervous systems to hearing our baby in distress in order to just like really hear what that message is. Is that message like, uh, uh, I don't like this? Or is that message like, five alarm fire, this is really freaking me out, you know? 
and then responding mm-hmm. in kind, if that makes sense. Yes. I think that's a critical point. And I think the reason why we st- – reading into your mind like I like to do, I think the reason why we started with saying like, hey, hold on. At 6 to 12 months, there's a cognitive development that's happening that may actually increase a child's distress around these kinds of situations. And then knowing that helps us filter out some of this distress instead of it activating our own threat response. Like, oh my God, my kid is in distress. Why is something wrong? Am I not being a good parent if I'm not responding to that? Versus, oh, wait, my kid is in distress, they're communicating distress, but it actually makes a lot of sense that they are. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a sign that something's wrong. It's Mm -hmm. normative. It's developmentally on track. It makes sense for a child to sometimes express distress and protest and even like intense distress if their perception is that this is, I can't handle this. Mm-hmm. But going back to this idea of like how do we build that resilience, which I'm so mm-hmm. glad this mom is thinking about and like I'm hoping that if she's here listening to the podcast, taking the authentic parent course, like, you know, asking these questions, we're on the right track here. We're looking at raising a child from this lens of how do I support resilience? Like so amazing that you're even asking this question. And I do think if you're interested in building out resilience in your child, what that kind of translates to is how do we support them in feeling a feeling and in witnessing our response to their feeling, reflecting that experience back to them in a way that says, this feeling is real, you are upset, it makes sense to me, and my ability to just stay calm in the face of that upset is going to communicate to you that that feeling is safe. Your feelings are real and they're safe. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you're upset being held by a stranger, you automatically mean want to tell your kid that's safe, right? But we're also saying like, if I feel that this adult who's holding them Mm -hmm. is a safe person to be holding them and they're telling me, the baby is telling me, I don't like this. In the only language that they have to do that, which is crying, my response to that is a communication too, right? If I go, oh my God, don't cry. I got you. And I grab them and I swoop them up and I pick them up and I shush, 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 okay. It's okay. You know, if I'm up here, high, high, high intensity in my response and like, what am I reflecting back to them about their emotional experience in that exchange? Ooh. I really get flooded by that. I have to swoop in and rescue you. What you're feeling, and obviously we may not actually intend for this to be the, you know, the the message we're sending, but it could inadvertently be internalized somewhere in this child's unconscious awareness that like, whoa, when I feel this kind of intense feeling, mom also freaks out, rescues me, must be unsafe. I must have been right. That was a threatening spirit. That situation or, oh, I really can't handle that feeling. That feeling isn't safe. And I don't think any parent is trying to make their child interpret that, but we have to be mindful of like, how do we reflect their emotional experiences back to them? Is it from a place of, whoa, we got to shut that off or, oh, you're upset. You don't, you're not liking this. Let me understand better. 
Like, let me lean in. Let me communicate some safety to your amygdala here. Yeah. I I mean, I think that that's exactly the two pieces I think are really important, which is self-regulating and then titrating your responsiveness, right? And maybe you start with, you know, not being super high on the responsiveness scale and you start with talking to the baby, you know, or you start with moving closer to the baby. I think there's a way to intervene that isn't, to your point, that high responsive, like, let me grab you, you can't handle it. I also think something super important that's sort of a little bit of a different layer than what you're talking about is, you know, we we all have different tolerances for that depending on what's going on in our lives, right? So your, to- mm-hmm. your ability to tolerate your baby being fussy is you know, or being in a, and I love that this, this um, listener said like a safe adult, like we know this baby's safe. That doesn't mean if I had a bad day at work and I'm coming home, I might just want to take my baby and hold my baby, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's harder for me to tolerate me as the parent hearing my baby in distress. And there might be other times when I'm feeling really filled up and really supported and really on my A game that I can, I can tolerate stretching that out a little too, and that's also another important variable in, in just being mindful, reading yourself and knowing like, okay, this is like the reviewing some of the things we just said. This is normal. This is developmentally appropriate. My baby's with a safe person, right? I don't have concerns here. Maybe I can stretch and build a little resilience by not snapping them up right away. I personally can handle that right now, right? And I think mm-hmm. those are some of the, the important things to keep in mind as you're as you're thinking through this scenario and those are all important variables to making a choice on how you respond. Yes, and because you're weighing multiple variables, which I love your point, you may have a wide range of responses depending on how those variables get weighted in any given moment and they're all okay. It's like what's the aggregate? Mm-hmm. Another thing I think that we say over and over on this podcast is like parenting happens in the aggregate. One swoop, one panicked swooping up of your baby is not going to do anything um, in terms of like, you know, instilling them a fear of the world or a lack of resiliency. And if that's your chronic go-to strategy, what's getting displaced by that? Um, Similarly, we only need to kind of like we talk about with the attunement and misattunement. If we misattune – it doesn't – it's not the end of the world, right? Like we don't – we. there's been lots of studies on how much a parent accurately attunes to their child and how – what that – how that impacts like predicting their attachment styles. And like there have been studies that have shown that a parent can misattune to their child like almost 50%. Like 54% of accurate attunement still predicted a secure attachment style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like – Okay, so if you were going to extrapolate that, 54% of the time you sort of titrate your response and stretch mm-hmm. a little. The other 46% of the time you're like, ah. Yeah. Or 54% of a discrete interaction, right? Like even in those interactions, if you're throwing a little spaghetti on the wall, right? You're trying to talk to the baby without picking the baby up. That's, you know, like you're able to hit it on the nail on the head you know, it doesn't have to be perfect even in those dis- discrete interactions in the aggregate. Totally. And so really quick, just to bring this back to this idea of the other side of that lens that we were saying you could interpret this question from is like, 
And I, I, the more I read this question, the more I don't actually think the mom is talking about consent and bodily autonomy. She's really looking at this more of a lens of like, how do I stretch that resilience? How do I allow my child to have a a safe experience of, of struggling a little bit with an, with an emotion Mm -hmm. in a way that allows them to sort of learn, oh, I can survive this emotion. It's pretty safe. I, I, it comes and it goes and I'm okay. Um, the other piece being, you know, body consent, body autonomy. If a child doesn't want, this goes, makes me think more of those situations where we're talking about like a child doesn't want to be picked up by somebody. Or hugged um, or, you know. That yeah. Way. Like doesn't want to say hi, doesn't want to give them a high five, doesn't want to sit in their lap, doesn't want to give them a hug, doesn't want to get picked up. Like presumably if this child's already being held by the safe adult and the mom comes in and the baby says, well, I'd much rather have you mom give, come here to right. me. And yeah. mom's trying to say, like, how do I support you in in stretching this discomfort a little bit? Um, that's very different than saying, like, you know, the grown-up, this other safe adult coming in and saying, let me pick you up. And the baby's like, I don't really want to be picked up right now. How do we promote consent? Since we are just sort of, like, playing around with looking at it from that lens. I think th- I, it, it's a great question. and 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 obviously we promote body consent and sort of personal autonomy. But I I also think it begets a bit of the question of where developmentally is, does that work, right? Because the baby doesn't have full autonomy. I mean, frankly, neither does a ch- toddler, but, but the baby really doesn't. And I think, and I, and in my view, I think it's, you know, not that we don't make mistakes, but I think it's our, our read as the parent to try to determine. And just like this listener said, this is a safe adult, right? And, and I think that's a little bit bigger umbrella-wise about that personal autonomy. But a baby doesn't, unfortunately, get to have total personal autonomy. Again, are we going to make them super distressed? You know, no, we don't want them to be crying hysterically for 20 minutes as we stand next to them and another, you know, safe adult is holding them. That's stretching it too much. But I don't, but it's a little bit out of, it almost doesn't fit with like the developmental age of this child to talk about it in that way, in my, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree with you actually. Cause like, you know, the way that I think about consent with really little children isn't, do I ask for your consent and wait to receive a yes? Right. Because they can't give me one, nor do they really understand what I'm asking. Right. That concept of asking for and waiting to receive consent is not developmentally appropriate for a six to 12 month old. And frankly, probably for even old, much older than that, you know, two, three even. Yeah. But the things that it's almost like, kind of like when I talk about debriefing something with a kid or, or collaborative problem solving with a kid after something has been tricky. Um, with really little kids, I might say, here's the problem how can we do this differently the next time? I don't actually expect them to give me an answer. I'm going to say, I wonder if we could do this the next time. So I'm going to offer them, model for them something so that – because developmentally, I don't expect them to be able to generate that. Whereas with an older child, I might wait and let them offer a solution, right? In this situation, if I were going to kind of transpose this to physical autonomy and consent, with a baby, I might say, I'm going to pick you up now. 
not not in this situation where I'm like trying to decide who should be holding my kid when they're in distress. But like if I'm just in the room, I walk into the room, I'm going to – my kid's got a dirty diaper. I can smell it and we're like, okay, we're going to change that diaper. I might sort of – instead of just swooping them up and taking them to the changing table to change their diaper, I might say, hey, you need to change your diaper a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick you up now. Pause just a beat. You know, let them hear what I'm saying. Again, they don't understand the words necessarily, especially infants, but they understand the tone. And if we get into this habit of letting a child know before you're going to pick them up what you're going to do, and then you do it slowly, you know, gently with their, again, it's not consent, but it's their participation, right? They've been included in the conversation. And now I'm bringing them over to the changing table and I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to take off your diaper now. I'm not asking for permission because I can't give it to me. I'm just walking them through it like they're a participant because Mm -hmm. what I feel like that does, it's a sign of respect of their autonomy, of their bodily separateness from me, and not that I can just swoop in and do whatever I like to their body, even though I'm helping them and I'm totally doing my job as a parent, like totally doing my job just by picking them up and changing their diaper. I don't need to ask their consent, won't receive it, but when I just – it's like a mindset shift. It's like, how do I relate to another human being in a way that is collaborative, acknowledging of their beingness, their their personhood, and saying, like, I'm going to do something that involves you, and I'm just going to let you know it's going to happen, and I'm going to communicate to you about that process along the way. I think what you're saying is the consent and the participation really comes from the parent and the attunement in those moments. And Mm -hmm. I think to bring it full circle, just back to this person's question, saying, all right, I'm going to hand you to the babysitter right now. And I'm going to go, you know, and we're going to have a conversation, but I have to have, I have to cook something or I have to do something. So I'm going to give you to the babysitter right now is a, is another way of sort of reflecting what you're saying, which is I, as the adult, I like swoop up both of us into this kind of big, you know, umbrella bubble and say like, okay, we are a unit here and I'm trying to be respectful, be attuned and sort of let you know and have you participate in what the next step is. Yes. And if my kid gets distressed about that, that doesn't necessarily mean I then immediately cancel the plans to go cook the dinner, right? To say, you're upset. It's so hard to see me go. I'll go and I will be back. And then you come back and you, you know, reunite and you you do the thing. But like, it's, it's we just don't avoid the distress because it's hard. That's, I think, where we build the resilience. Yep. Awesome. Well, I hope this was helpful and we'll, we'll wait, await all of your next questions. So stay tuned. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. As you can hear, parenting is not one size fits all. It's nuanced and it's complicated. So I really hope that this series where we're answering your questions It really helps you to cut through some of the noise and find out what works best for you and your unique child. If you have a burning parenting question, something you're struggling to navigate, or a topic you really want us to shed light on or share research about, we want to know. Go to drsarahbrenton.com forward slash question to send in anything that you want Rebecca, Emily, and me to answer in Securely Attached Beyond the Sessions. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash question. 
and check back for a brand new Securely Attached next Tuesday. And until then, don't be a stranger.